Welcome to a special edition of the Knowledge Institute podcast, where we discuss the global startup ecosystem with experts, deconstruct main ideas, share their insights. I'm Jeff Cavanaugh, head of the Infosys Knowledge Institute. Today, we're here with John Bohanner, Director of Science at Primer. John, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. John, let's start off talking about your history for a minute. How did you go from getting a PhD in molecular biology from Oxford to becoming an investigative data journalist embedded with NATO in Afghanistan? I did a PhD because I thought it would be fun. I didn't have a really specific plan. I really enjoyed it. But then um, I wasn't good enough with my hands. I think uh, with molecular biology, if you're going to work in the lab, you actually have to be quite dexterous. And the thing that drove me crazy was I would squirt a droplet of liquid just into the wrong tube or <laughs> the wrong amount, and you would lose sometimes months of work. If you're not good enough with your hands, it can, it can drive you crazy. I heard that science, the journal, had um, possibilities for interns of some kind. And so I sent an email or maybe even a paper letter <laughs> to the editor of science. I later found out it circulated as a joke at science. Science is like one of the most prestigious journals in the world, you know, science and nature. And sometime later, I got an email from the editor of the news department at Science. <laughs> and he said, well, you know, you have a very interesting background. I, I told him I was finishing a molecular biology PhD and I hadn't written much, but uh, except for plays, I was very active in the theater scene in England. And uh, he said, well, the, you know, that's interesting. Maybe you should do a, a news internship. And uh, so then he passed me off to Rich Stone, who had just started the Cambridge UK Office of Science. And he said, well, have you ever written any journalism? No. Uh, he said, okay, well, here's a scientific paper, write about it. I was like, okay, can you give me some examples of what that looks like? <laughs> and uh, he did, and I just sort of copied the style. And he said, all right, kid, good enough. And next thing I knew, I was on the border of North Korea trying to track down a guy from Germany who had set up a factory to convert dead human bodies into artwork. You may have heard of this big show that's traveling around called Body Worlds. So my mission was to try and find out where he was getting his bodies. And most importantly, was he sourcing them from Chinese state prisons and mental institutions? The answer was yes. And so I kind of broke that story and there was just no looking back. I loved it. The idea that you could use your scientific know-how to just go off into the world and investigate things in the real world and then write stories about it. I just loved it. So I did that for uh, more than a decade. The Indiana Jones of journalism. <laughs> yeah. All right. Primer, as I understand it, is an AI company. What do you do at Primer? Over the past, let's say, seven years, I've switched entirely to data science. Even when I was a journalist, I was just entirely doing coding and data science. So when I joined Primer, the first thing I wanted to focus on was how to make sense of scientific papers from the point of view of a machine. So, you know, in this case, people interested in science are the customer. They could be actual scientists, or they could be policymakers, or they could be someone at a drug company who's trying to get their head around the science of something to build a product. You have this fundamental problem of too much information. And so I just brought my skills to bear from science journalism. I put myself in the customer's shoes, and um, I had a wonderful team to work with to try and create new algorithms to process that text in order to help you find stuff. Here's a concrete example. One of the first things that I coded myself was a jargon translator. So the way it works is you feed in text like a scientific paper. And what it does is it goes through and it tries to find technical terminology that is being abbreviated. So ML is a great example of that. AI is an example of that. You know, AI, if you keep on using that term, uh, you're going to lose some people 
because they might not know that it stands for artificial intelligence. Infosys, I'm not even sure what that stands for. Uh, someone knows, information systems maybe? So that's jargon. Jargon is special technical language that people are using in text. And so the first thing I did was to make something that finds all that stuff, figures out the abbreviated and the long form, and just automatically generates a glossary for you of the jargon. It's kind of a dumb pet trick <laughs> with data science. Not hard, but man, does it make a difference, you know, because you can now go into a whole new field, something you, you know nothing about. And when you hit a term that it just is totally mystifying, you've got this automatic glossary that'll tell you what it stands for, at least. And what's your thought process behind focusing on machine learning, natural language processing, et cetera? So when I started at Primer, circa 2017, NLP, which is natural language processing, using computers to make sense of text, it was really hard. I mean, really hard. The tools just were not there yet. You had to build everything from scratch. And there was a lot of rule-based heuristics. You'd have to be the machine yourself and figure out the exact step-by-step -step process that uh, some algorithm could do to make sense of that text. So in the case of that algorithm that did the automatic jargon glossary generation, it's nothing but rules. There's no fancy machine learning in there. It's going and looking for patterns. And I, as the engineer, had to figure out what those patterns are one by one, find all those corner cases. It's a lot of work. Starting in 2018, just a, a year and, and a half later from when I started, suddenly NLP practitioners had the whole situation change when a new tool got created called language models. Suddenly, and I really mean overnight, stuff started working. You could basically solve problems that you would have had to spend weeks and weeks making some really bespoke little handcrafted solution for. Now you could just throw data at the problem and nine times out of 10, it would just work. And I tell you, NLP just got fun. <laughs> My job just turned from you know, a good mixture of fun and hard work to just fun, just playground fun. That's where machine learning really shines. And we're in the middle of a real revolution here. You know, now if I were to solve that jargon problem again with these new tools, I would take a totally different approach. I would just go and have some human experts label data for us, just basically capture what they know, which is essentially capturing what they want. And then I would teach a machine using a machine learning model to just do that task. And the more data you give it, the better and better it gets. There's lots of caveats there. It doesn't always work as well as you hope. Sometimes it's not the right tool for the job, but more and more here at Primer, and I think across the industry, we're ripping out all of those old heuristic-based approaches, those hard-coded, bespoke little NLP solutions, ripping them out by the roots and replacing them with machine learning. There's this expression that software is eating the world. Well, machine learning is eating software. There's a concept about black box, white box, that for people outside of the testing world, the coding world, if you can't see inside the box, you are completely relying on trust for anybody to use it. Because I used to be in the supply chain world, and a lot of those optimization tools, late 90s, early 2000s, were solving great problems, integer programming and closed loop optimization and all that, where you know materials and orders and capacity and sequencing were finally put together. No cloud at that point, all on-premise. Nobody would use them in their first wave. And there were a couple of companies like I2 Technologies that said, you know, if we do a very good way of showing what's going on and making it clear and giving a little peek inside the box, then the senior executive will say, okay, I trusted enough. And then they just took off. So it wasn't the person that had the best algorithm. It was the one that generated the most trust about a pretty mediocre algorithm at the time that it just took off. 
So here's a, a direct parallel of that in my world. You're right that a deep learning machine learning model is a black box, ultimately. You just can't hope to know why are the neurons you know, hooked up this way? We're never going to know. That's just not how you can understand them. But what you can do is you can shine some light into that black box. And one of the tools we've made recently to do that is something called saliency. And so our black boxes, they take input as text, right? So you feed in pages and pages of text, and it's going to do something for you. For example, it might classify them. Let's say you have a whole bunch of documents flowing in. I'll make this up. These are complaints from customers. Some system, you've got complaints from customers coming in, and you need to triage. You need to put these guys in the right buckets so that they can be dealt with appropriately. Well, you can put a classifier right there at that gate. The documents are coming in, and its job is to say which bucket this belongs in. So that's classification. If that's all you got, that's a classic black box. You just don't know why I put that doc into that bucket. There's no way to know. And so we've made this thing that you can use to have the model explain itself. So a doc comes in, it says this belongs in bucket A. You can say, what was it about this doc that made you decide it belonged in bucket A? And what it does, and it literally looks like this, it's as if it took a highlighter pen, went to that doc and said, these words, and in fact, this sentence is the most important bit for me making that decision. It just works. It's kind of amazing. Essentially, like when you get human experts to look at what the model highlighted, they sure enough will tell you, yeah, that's what I would have highlighted. It doesn't always work that way, but when it does, that really helps. And it's showing you what was most salient when it read the doc. What you've done is you've essentially taken a whole big doc, which takes a long time for a human to read, and then you've focused in on a small part of the doc, which was most useful for its classification effort. And so you've essentially summarized the decision-making process. By the way, it's useful not only for building trust with a customer who wants to use this thing, but it's, it's just a great reliability tool for the engineers who build them. To give you an example, if I train a model and I use saliency, I look at some decisions the model made that I disagree with, and I'm like, why is it making this error? Well, now I can say, show me what it is in this doc that you're paying attention to. And often, if it's a really dumb mistake, it's because, oh, I am picking out these words, and often they'll be ambiguous words, or maybe it'll be... Oh, you know what I'm realizing is I've skewed the training data. I've basically taught the model to cheat. Whenever it sees this word, it just assumes, oh, that belongs in that bucket. And it's because my data isn't balanced. It's not diverse enough. And so these little tools are actually very useful for the engineer as well as the customer. What goes around comes around. So we've talked about bias inside and ways to, to look at it and to minimize it. Natural language processing is difficult. You said it's gotten better, at least with the horsepower behind it. It sounds like you operate at a global scale, national security, global corporation. What's the difference about solving problems at that scale versus something that's a little more of a you know, small or almost at a toy level? If we're talking about a global scale, and that means not just volume, not just like, oh, there's more of it, but it's more diverse. The context in which the thing is going to be used is less predictable, less well-defined. The diversity of, in our case, text you should assume it's going to be very high. You just don't know. That presents some challenges that you don't have to worry about as much when you have a small scale problem where you really can define all of the, the range of inputs it'll see in the range of contexts and use cases. Here's a very tangible, practical example of that. We have a, a model called named entity recognition. So it does the job of finding all the people, places, organizations, and other named entity things in a piece of text. 
So you could feed in a contract or a news article or a bunch of emails, and it's just going to go through and find for you all of the named entities in that text. And there's a ton of downstream useful work you can do with that. You got to create that structure first, though. Make a big lookup table of all the people, places, things. If you have a, a truly global customer who's going to be building solutions on top of that model, it's a real problem if that model was only trained on Western names. If it largely only ever saw during training time, Western people, Western locations, Western organizations, you can bet it is going to perform more poorly when that model and the systems built on it are deployed off in totally different contexts that involve foreign names, non-Western uh, locations, and so forth. And so what we've done at Primer is we've tested how well our named entity recognition model performs when you throw it into a foreign land. And the way we did that was we made a huge data set of non-Western and Western names, first and last of people, and we played a substitution game. So we had all this gold label data where we know what the true answers are. And we basically substituted the names of people in our first experiment with one of about a dozen other languages. So we had a big grab bag of Finnish names. We had a big grab bag of Korean names and so forth. And it's a statistical test of whether when you replace the names systematically and randomly with other cultures, does the system perform better or worse in a way that can be explained just by the origin language? And sure enough, some models, as soon as you swap those names out with anything but other English names, the performance just starts to nosedive. It can't recognize the name or it misclassifies it. Oh, that's not a person, that's an organization or whatever. Then the next step, of course, is to mitigate. So now what you can do, of course, is you can take training data and play the swaparoo game. So you just make sure that the model really does get exposed to truly diverse names. It doesn't stop there. You also need to increase the diversity of the text that it was trained on in the first place. You need to go off and you need to find you know, foreign newspapers and unusual formatted data. You need to boost that diversity so that you're not making something that can only run on rails. You really need something that can off-road. But that's what it looks like day to day. That's actually when you're dealing with a truly global set of customers, you have to double down on reliability. What are some of the other kinds of challenges that you're looking to solve at Primer, you know, now and you see around the corner? I'd say the thing that's just totally preoccupying me right now is uh, we've launched this exciting new kind of scary, hard to imagine product called Automate. The basic idea behind it is We've been building all these machine learning models behind the scenes to power the products that we sell to these big organizations. And a light bulb went off in our head. Hey, we could also just sell those models and make it possible for people to fine tune them for their own problems. It's really incredibly challenging because we have to reverse our engineer ourselves as data scientists so that some customer who's not a data scientist at all can just walk right in and get to work and actually solve a problem end to end train a machine learning model and deploy it to solve some problem that they have looking at the corporate world today are there any specific challenges that you think should be solved and maybe that's around the corner you know beyond the tools that you have today that maybe businesses in general should be solving or you're excited about helping them solve maybe the next year or two an example of something that i would love to see us solve in the next couple of years is just keeping track of everything you already know 
in a knowledge base so that you don't have to basically keep updating this knowledge base. It's a, it should be a self-updating knowledge base. So you have some system that's listening to you, listening to your world, whatever those information streams are that are passing through. And it just does this passive, boring job of keeping track of everything you're learning about the things you care about in your world. So we call that final system a knowledge base or a knowledge graph. It's really just a big database that's keeping in a nice structured way everything you know about your world that you care about. And to this day, people have to do this terrible task that is often called wikinoming. It's that incredibly boring, tedious thing of going and entering data into a system, you know, bit by bit, correcting it, tidying it, feeding it. It's like having a pet. And it just soaks up the, the life force of all these wonderful people who should be freed from that task so they can be synthetic and creative. That's what humans are good at. And we started to build such a system. We call it Quicksilver. We built the first version more than two years ago. And you can share with readers a nice link to a Wired article that was written about it. There, for our first prototype application, we wanted to make literally a self-writing Wikipedia that would go off and find all of the women of science who were missing from Wikipedia, who had done work just as important and notable as the men of science who already have Wikipedia pages. And it would just write a draft of that person's bio and put it in a queue of work for human volunteers. And so that's what we built. And that's a sign of what I hope that we're going to build for the rest of the world uh, in the coming years. So whether you're in the government or a big company, you have some world you care about, whatever it is. And you have all of this information about the entities in that world, whatever that is. And you have to keep it somewhere and you have to somehow get the world's information into your world so that you can access it, manipulate it. You can be alerted when something crucial is changing. And that's the name of the game, self-updating, self-writing knowledge bases. So that's what I want to build. That sounds great. And uh, everyone, you'll be able to find details on our show notes and transcripts at emphasis.com slash IKI. Thank you so much for your time and a very interesting discussion. And maybe we'll have you back again sometime. Oh, it'd be a pleasure. Everyone, you've been listening to the Knowledge Institute. We talk with experts on business trends, deconstruct main ideas, and share their insights. Thanks to our producer, Catherine Burdett, Christine Calhoun, and the entire Knowledge Institute team. Until next time, keep learning, keep sharing.